everyone. Welcome to New Slang. I'm your host, music journalist Thomas Mooney. I hope you all had a great Labor Day weekend. This is episode 118, where I'm joined by singer-songwriter Waylon Payne. So I've been a big fan of Waylon's work since being told to listen to his first record called The Drifter probably 12, 13 years ago, and have just kind of kept up with Waylon's songwriting since. And for the longest time, that was keeping up with songs that he had co-written with other artists and that those artists had cut. People like Miranda Lambert, Wade Bowen, Ashley Monroe, Leanne Womack, and so on. So it shouldn't be any surprise that I was really excited when he finally announced a release date for this new album called Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. It's out at the end of this week, but if you've been paying attention, these past six months or so, he's been releasing three song EPs, acts if you will, every few months, and so yeah, you should be kind of familiar with the first nine songs. And these final three songs, just just wait, they're just mesmerizing. The album closing Old Blue Eyes is just one of the most beautifully composed songs in years. It has a really cinematic feel, and it kind of has this like old jazz standard touch to it as well. It's like Christofferson meets Wee Hours of the Morning Frank Sinatra meets the closing credits of like your favorite bittersweet film. And the rest of the album, it, it kind of just wrecks you in all the right ways. Songs like Dangerous Criminal and High Horse and Dead on the Wheel, you kind of become surrounded by them. You become enthralled by like that world in which Wayland's created. It's easy to get lost within the emotional outpouring, the grief, the heartbreak, the understanding and acceptance and growth that's all wrapped up within these storytelling arcs and themes. And you can hear in Wayland's voice why these songs are so significant to him and where he's at in his life. You don't just hear that ache and moan, you really feel it. It's deep within the bones and the infrastructure of these songs. And of course, like writing these songs, it's practically a given that that is part of the therapeutic process. But you really hear it in Waylon's voice as well and in his delivery. And the recording part, it's been just as vital. One easy way to hear that is listen to the way each of these songs finishes. When he's delivering those final few words, he's really spent. Nearly each of these songs, there's like this final exhale to the the final words. And it feels like a necessary period to those sentences, that chapter, if you will. It's practically on every single one of the songs, and it's an incredibly moving aspect to the album. I genuinely feel like this album is just kind of perfect. So yeah, with all of that in mind, be sure to check out this album at the end of the week. Today's presenting sponsor is Desert Door Texas Soto. If you know anything about me, it's probably that I'm from the heart of West Texas and absolutely love everything about West Texas. And that's really why I love Desert Door so much. You may be asking yourself what exactly Soto is. Well, it's a premium spirit that's similar to a tequila or a mezcal. But for my money, it's a little bit more refined and smooth. There's a sweetness and faint hints of vanilla and citrus. 
and it's also as versatile as your garden variety vodka. At its core, Desert Door is authentically West Texas. They go out and harvest soto plants from the wild and bring them back to their distillery over in Driftwood, Texas. So next time you're at your local liquor store, get a bottle of Desert Door. For more info, check this episode's show notes. If this is your first time listening to New Slang, I strongly suggest hitting that subscribe link. If you just did, I'm giving you a virtual high five right now. New Slang is over on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and basically any and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Go check out the New Slang merch store. Grab a koozie, some stickers, buttons, and magnets. Any bit helps. I'll throw a link into the show notes. And if you're into playlists, go check out Tom Mooney's Cup of Coffee and the Neon Eon playlists over on Spotify. The Neon Eon is for all your nostalgic 90s country needs, which there's going to be more Neon Eon related stuff coming your way pretty soon. And then Tom Mooney's Cup of Coffee is a regularly updated mix of new Americana and country music. It's also a really great hint at who I have coming up on the podcast. So yeah, go follow those. All right, I think that's about it right here. Here is Waylon Payne. Yeah, you got this new record coming out next week. And, you know, I guess like originally you were going to be calling this The Prodigal. Um, and then yes. you, you changed it to Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me, which I know you, you've mentioned about how you were maybe a little uneasy with how long the title is, but I, I just really love that like long, not necessarily rambling, but kind of rambling title. I think it just perfectly fits the the album. At what point did you decide? Yeah, let's just go with this title. Well, it came, um, in the final, in the final, uh, months of the, of the project before it was, before it was about to be released. Um, I originally promised my buddy Tyler, who is, who uh, is blue eyes, he was also the pusher because he was my drug dealer. Uh, it sounds very romantic, but it's not romantic. <laughs> but um, we uh, we used to sing Christopherson songs. He he loved singing the Silver Tongue Devil, and I and uh, I uh, was with him one day, and he was like, "Man, you need to come up with something as cool as that." Silver Tongue Devil and I. And I looked around and I said, blue eyes, the harlot, the queer, the pusher and me. And he was like, whoa, <laughs> you got to promise me you'll name an album that one day. And so I was like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like it. I mean, it's obviously you in the, the record with that line. And it just there's like this, especially at the very end of that record, the back half, especially. I feel like there's some really... Um, delicate and like light like dreamy kind of soundscapes that you guys are going and it right. really is big time as you end the record it, it very much feels like the end of a movie you're hitting the, the the credits it kind of uh you know i'm glad that you're picking up kind of the end of the movie uh vibe and um i've always said look at that this car door shutting you get all these sound effects in your in your <laughs> podcast, so these folks know that I just drank to get cigarettes. <laughs> um, I think that it's very cinematic. Cinematic, the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I've always said that it was kind of like a cross between the Wizard of Oz and the Grapes of Wrath and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Giant. Yeah. And uh, I love the way that the strings make it feel so big and beautiful. And um, I think the stories are kind of larger than life, too, in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, a big part of that, I feel that this is one of those things that, that you've done for for the record, but it's not even necessarily something that a lot of people do is is the, the essay aspect of all this. I was going to bring this up later, but the essays, I feel like when you read those stories that you've written about these songs, you do get all that context of like the bigger story and like the place that these little vignettes are within your life during this time. And I think like that's such a rewarding aspect of listening to this record is going back. I didn't didn't want to, I didn't want them to be misunderstood. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they were really, they're really important songs to me. I mean, if, if to nobody, but just me, um, and, and the lessons that I learned from these songs and, and, you know, they're important. And I just, uh, yeah, it just, it just, uh, it felt like it was right. You know? Mm-hmm. Was like, obviously like writing these songs, there is that, that, uh, like the cathartic process. There's that therapeutic aspect of writing these songs that are about these really, difficult subjects was writing like the essays did, did you get a whole lot of that sense as well when you were writing the essays and putting all the well you didn't have to necessarily make it rhyme or anything but you putting all the the pieces around the songs together was there a, a well therapeutic like my buddy no? my buddy edward you know he's with, he's the guy that saved my life he and his mm-hmm. kid his kid lake right um, there were some times when he or, or, or maybe just other people uh, at certain points as I would sing one of these songs or whatever, or, or songs in the past for that matter, um, people would kind of draw their own conclusions to, you know, and sometimes those conclusions are, are dead on. And sometimes those conclusions are absolutely off the mark, you know? Right. Um, and I wanted to be able to offer... I wanted to be able to offer this story and, and, and I offered it through the songs, but I didn't want there to be any chance that they would not be understood for exactly what they were and how powerful they were. And so I had written the essays just mostly as a, as kind of like a, uh, creative writing project to myself, you know, and then I gave them to Frank and everybody kind of seemed to like them. And that's where that idea was born. I kind of, you know, because it is such a cathartic piece of, material if you will this this project so autobiographical it, it just it just it just seemed like it was right you know mm-hmm. yeah like i like i said like i love i love being able to get all the context of of a song for an artist and if that's in like you know, an essay or like a conversation with that person, I think like they just add so much more to those songs and it does provide um, more understanding. And that's like, for for me, I guess like that's how, what I am as a listener. I'm always wanting Mm -hmm. to like find my way into where you were at and why did you write that, that kind of thing. So like, I love all of these extra extras basically. And I think like I want to 
ask you about one specific one, and that's the one about uh, Dead on the Wheel. Yeah. I, that story, I had a friend who sent it to me whenever you first released that, like the, the essay part, and that is as like devastating a ending as like you can find. I, I don't know, like whatever, like how you wrote that about. Hey, that's Lindsay. true, dude. Like, that's, that's how profound that day was. That's how profound that moment was and that's why that song needed to be part of this thing in this this collection of songs about hope you know Mm -hmm. it just drove me crazy when i rode dead on a wheel it was around 2012 right and um, and you've read the essay so you know what i'm talking about but there was a time in our lives where Lindsay lohan was everywhere dude like she could not get a break it was like they just that tmz thing just drove her it was just terrible and it just all drove me crazy nuts. And, you know, I can only say that it was something bigger than me that had me in California at the time that that billboard was taking place to be at the time where I fucking had her on my heart and their whole family was going through hell. You know what I mean? Right. That's just like a God thing. It's like a power. It's a bigger power. You know, I don't know if it's God or if it's the universe or what it is, but I know that that, that, that was definitely something that needed to be paid attention to. Yeah. And that too, right there is going back to the movie thing, you know, like how many movies have you, how many films have you watched where, you know, you're getting a few different, I guess, little, these characters who you don't feel like they're connected whatsoever, but then at the end they all tie together. Right. And that's what that felt like so much. Like reading that essay is just, just in some, some powerful stuff there. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you took time to read those words. I'm glad they found your eyes. Yeah, I'm, again, I really like that, uh, all that other stuff that added. Um, obviously, like, this record has been a long time coming for you. You know, your first yeah. record was, so I guess, you know, it's, what, 2004? So 16 years. Yeah. Um, is it, like, is there a sense of relief in a way, like, that you're finally getting this this record, these collections of songs out? Well, this one, this particular collection has been in the works for about 10 years. You know, mm-hmm. when I moved to Austin and I made some changes in my life, got sober. Uh, the guy that helped me do that was my buddy Edward. And Edward had a baby uh, named Lake. And I had never had very many healthy male relationships in my life and this was one of the very very first and it was profound and it was heavy and um when i realized that that child knew who i was and that child deserved a man of caliber much like his father i thought you know uh or he just deserved good people around him it just made me stand up and want to be a better man it just really did i got sober uh right as his first birthday He's nine now, so it uh, it was was a heavy thing. Mm -hmm. And when I put it down, I put it down, and it's never really been a problem again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I think one of the bigger, larger themes of this record um, that I I see is, um, I think, like, we obviously have, like, a real major problem in our culture of, male uh men just being able to like uh be emotional and yeah 
you know, like I, I see so many of these songs where you're, you're very vulnerable, you know, you're, you, you are just being brutally honest. And I think that's very, very, you know, it's frowned upon in our, in our culture for men to, to release these emotions. Um, do you, do you, do you kind of see that we're like, you know, obviously like guys just kind of hold on to their emotional baggage. And I did, I, I held on to it for a while because I didn't know how to deal with it. I had a lot of baggage, dude. I had some sex abuse. I had drug addiction. I had just some stuff that it had had me weighed down. And, and I don't have, I don't have friends anymore that aren't emotional, you know? Edwards is the biggest man I know, but that man can, that man can feel, you know, and he's showing his child that he can feel. And so I feel like there's progress being made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It sucks that we're taught to be such toxic masculine men, you know, there's nothing wrong with being masculine at all. I like being a man. It's, It's a good thing, but compassion and feeling and, you know, grace we all could use a reminder of those. And I needed to remind myself that I was able to give that to myself, you know, and when you can learn to give yourself a break, it seems like things can work easier, you know? And as this record has come out, as each song has happened and each essay has been released, it's, it's, it's been the most freeing and, and, uh, calming thing in my life, dude. It really is. It's, uh, it's just, it's changed everything about me. It's just seemed to, things are kind of put in their place now. So it's real good. Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, obviously like you, you talk about your drug addiction and drugs in, in America is obviously a massive problem, but going to that toxic, toxic masculinity thing, like there's, there's a correlation between like our grandfathers or great grandfathers dying at an early age of, you know, heart attacks or, you know, any kind of problems like that. And I think it has to do with them just never releasing any kind of emotion other than Well, that too. And, you know, all of our grandfathers, if you look at them when they're in like, you know, first grade, they look like they're fucking 50. (laughs) You You ever notice that? Like, like you see a picture of like somebody from the forties or the fifties and they look like they're about 50 or so. And they're like, Oh no, that's my graduation picture. (laughs) Like, Holy (laughs) shit, dude. What were you guys dealing with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the, I guess, I don't know, it's like the Dust Bowl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, most of my ancestors, you know, most of my family problems started in the Dust Bowl, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's, I most of my family has been kind of from West Texas and Oklahoma, Oklahoma and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just, and I don't know, like it, it's such a, at some at points in my life when I feel like, man, I'm having a hard time, I try and, like, have that little bit of gratitude that, you know, it, there's been progress where I'm not, you know, just out in a field somewhere or, like, working yeah. cattle or – which there's nothing wrong with that. But obviously, like, working out in the sun is uh, is no fun. <laughs> Yo, no. <clears throat> yeah. Um, can you hold on one second? Yes. All right.
Are you there? Yep. Sorry. I uh, I usually close my office door, and of course, when I close the office door, cats want inside if the if the door's closed, and then like once they're in, they want out, and yeah, you know. Come here, buddy. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, like obviously going through and becoming sober sobriety um you have to you go through a lot of i guess like there's that process the steps right of um you know owning what you've done and the just the being brutally honest right yeah how do you think that's like helped you as a songwriter well, it's never a bad thing to be in touch with your feelings and in touch with the truth. And, uh, and songwriting has always been the most true thing I've ever known. You know, all my heroes wrote songs that were true. Mm-hmm. They wrote songs that, that <clears throat> weren't always comfortable, you know? Um, but they always had some sort of, message they were trying to drive home that that before the end of that three minutes was up you've definitely felt something you know and uh man once i was able to put everything where it belonged and and realize that i wasn't i wasn't responsible for all of it you know Mm -hmm. Um, you know uh there's a great, you know, there's a great deal when you, uh, of relief that comes when you find out that you've been sick. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, <clears throat> you're feeling bad for a long time and you can't figure out why. And then suddenly you find the right doctor that goes, oh, well, this is the problem, you know. And it should have you know, been easy to see, but for some whatever reason, you just couldn't see it. And once you're able to tackle the sickness and, and the, the place that's wrong then you're able to, to, you know, figure out how to use that for the rest of your life to help folks, I guess. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what this whole thing means. I know that I feel better now than I've felt in a long time, and I think it has to do with me putting these song, these feelings where they go. And these songs help me do that, you know. And and, and this is just my story of, of realizing I was in trouble and deciding to make a change and the thoughts that came in the aftermath of that change. And, uh, yeah. 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 Um, just for like some added context, I guess for, for, especially for listeners who don't really know, uh, my stepdad is a a drug counselor. So like, I feel him being a, a part of my life, even though I've never really had a problem with any kind of drugs or anything like that, just having that other voice in, in my life to like, let you know that like, there's being able to uh, process any kind of problems is, is fine, you know, and that's, uh, that's kind of reassuring. And I think that, you know, a lot of um, other people in this world need to know that, you know. And well, there's a lot of people that can't deal with the shit that's gone on with them, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes back to that thing we were talking about, toxic ma- masculinity. Nobody ever pulls us aside and says, hey, it's okay to feel, you know, and, and nobody, 
I mean, there are a lot of guys that are going around out there that are fucked up in their life because they were fucked fucked with as a kid you know right or you know or or, or they had abusive drug addicted parents and they you know so much of it comes from stuff that's not even your fault yeah and uh when you're able to find a way to deal with it and talk about it you know then it does make things better you shine a light on something then you can find it yeah you know you mentioned just a minute ago about the like the uncomfortable moments um and then putting those into songs, putting those, processing those feelings and, and getting them down into words. Um, how is that like whenever you bring that into like a co-writing? Uh, well, the co-writing things are different, dude. Like most of the songs on this record are, are solo rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, Santa Ana wins is, is, is a co-write with my buddy Dean. He wrote the music and I wrote the words, but that's, I still consider that a solo, right? Um, but the songs that rounded it out um, are the ones that ended up bringing hope to the song, to the album, you know, all the trouble. I didn't write that by myself. I wrote that with Liam Womack and Adam Wright. And uh, I wasn't going to put this on the record, but it, in the end, Frank was like, no, 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 this might work. And, and it did. It belongs, you know, back from the grave and precious thing. I broke back from the grave with Clint Lauterberg and, and, and Brandy Clark. And they brought something special than I needed, you know, it, I, I, I couldn't get there by myself. Um, sometimes the co-write situation turns into a bad thing though, because you know, you, you're going to go somewhere and nobody knows what you're talking about. Um, but for the most part, my, so my co- co-writes turned out really effective and, and, uh, it's that whole thing about, I don't know, I guess being, being together, you can analyze what thoughts are yours and which ones go where, I don't know. Yeah. Now I'm just sounding like I'm bullshitting because I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was going to ask, though, is like, do you, these songs right here in particular uh, that are on the record, that are the co-writes, are these like ideas that you brought to them or vice versa or that were just kind of born in the room as far as like... Born to Lose, general? Born to Lose, I'd been working on for five or six years and my buddy Thomas Yankton uh, came in one day and we we, we finished that together. Uh Back from the grave, precious thing. Those were born in the rooms. Uh, what else is on here that I didn't write? Um, all the trouble was born in the room. And I think those are them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's them right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, like you've been doing some other co-writes in general. Uh, that oh, I, made I, it to... I mean, like hell, yeah, like. I owed Frank 90 songs when I came back and I think I wrote like 300. <laughs> <laughs> well, I co-wrote a lot. Yeah. Well, I, uh, go ahead. I like it. I've been writing, you know, I have a steady group of writers that I write with a lot. Like Miranda Lambert, Ashley Monroe, Aaron Retier. Um, they make me feel good. We always get good songs. Um, I love writing with Leanne. We we uh, we uh, go off once once every year or so, and we'll have a songwriter camp. Um, Shelby Lynn, man, we used to write for years. I need to get more diligent about getting out there and doing that again. Pat Green and I are fixing to uh, start uh, working on his new album. He's asked me to come and join him and, and uh, write some songs, and uh, that's always a good that's always a fun one. I love Pat. He's a yeah. good guy. But you, you've got a couple of co-writes on that Wave on Rave, Wave record. 
way back. Yeah, I did. I wrote a couple of songs and I did all of the harmonies on that record. So hopefully, maybe we'll get a, we'll get together and do another project like that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. What well, What was that like back then? I mean, like whenever Pat was just kind of blowing up, uh, you you kind of like are in the, I guess seeing that from a, you know, right next to him in a, in a little bit of a way. What was that? Well, like it's kind of it was badass watching him because I mean you know I mean I thought I thought I was a rock star anyway, so it was like we were all blowing up together, sort of. Mm-hmm. Although it took a few more minutes for me to blow up, and Pat was was directly responsible for helping me get my record deal. Um, you know, so I always I always thank Pat a lot for that, and um, uh, we were all just buddies, you know. That was why I was so easily able to call Corey Morrow when I was in Nashville, and I said I needed to get out. I needed help. He was, he picked up the phone, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I love my Texas friends. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, see, I remember you playing at blue light here in Lubbock. Uh, I don't know, probably. God, that was a long time ago. We almost got arrested know, like that next day too. Oh really? Yeah. Cause I wanted to go up to Gaiman to see my mom. She's buried up there and some dude drove me up there and, we got pulled over about an hour outside of Lubbock. I mean, just and just practically stripped naked on the side of the road. They were looking for something. They didn't find anything, but uh, it was interesting. Mom said, "You got a pass. You don't need to go to Gaiman. Get on out of here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This episode is in part brought to you by the Blue Light Live here in Lubbock, Texas. While Blue Light is still closed due to the pandemic, there is a way to help. A, support Blue Light, and B, get a sense of that normalcy by visiting bluelightlubbock.com, clicking on the merch tab, and getting some koozies, a vast array of t-shirts and caps, and yes, even a Blue Light flag. While it is such a bummer that live music is still on hold right now, I'm telling you, by getting some Blue Light live merch, you're going to feel better. It just feels better wearing a t-shirt and ball cap and helping support your favorite bar again that's bluelightlubbock.com click on the merch tab get some merch all right back to the episode one of the songs i always want to ask you about that is obviously not on your on this record but is a co-write is 730 off of wade bowen's record solid ground yeah um i've heard wade talk a little bit about it what do you remember from that write? Uh, he and Angelina Presley and I wrote that, right? Mm-hmm. And we wrote it at uh, Angelina's house that morning. I'm not sure what they're going to say about it. I think that um, I almost cut it on my record too, but I, I called it 728 in the morning because um, 728 in the morning was when they called me and let me know that my mom was dead. Mm. And uh, uh, it kind of, uh, I don't know. I was writing it from my mom, from my mom, I think. I don't know. What did he say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think like what I remember is like him talking about, um, you mentioning that, like that being the story. And, uh, that's why like the naming it seven 30, of course you said seven 28, but that's, that's what I remember him talking about as far as like the, the roots of that song and like the, the title. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I miss my mama. I loved her a lot. Mm-hmm. She shows up in a lot of music. Yeah, you know, one of the things that 
it's one of those things you mentioned in the essay too. And you talked about whenever your father and when your mom passed away, you both called their cell phone numbers. And that was like, ah, that is very like, um, just a heavy yeah, thing. It's true. I don't even know why I did it, but I did in both, both instances. It's like, maybe you think it's a mistake and they're going to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that from, you know, if that, I feel like that's something that most people would do to try and, um, make sure it wasn't a mistake yeah so i don't know that's very i wouldn't recommend it (laughs) yeah because it probably is not going to be a mistake (laughs) 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 you know Mm -hmm. let it wash over you for a minute and then if you get a call later saying that it was a mistake rejoice (laughs) but (laughs) try not to dial the number because you're just going to get really upset (laughs) yeah (laughs) well um Going back to some of those co-writes, I don't know. I'm really interested in a lot of co-writing stuff. Go for it. Um, talk. Obviously, you mentioned Miranda and Ashley Monroe. Yes. Uh, writing a bunch with them. You've got – and Leanne, obviously. You, you've got a bunch of co-writes with them that they've cut. What is it about, like, writing with them that brings out, like, a lot of greatness in you and vice versa? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of it – boils down to the fact that we all love what we do. And um, I love sitting down with my friends that are like-minded, and I love starting with nothing and 30 minutes later ending up, or an hour later, ending up with something that you're singing six years from then mm-hmm. you know it's like you get to have a baby with somebody and and uh, then you get to watch it grow if if it gets a shot sometimes it dies the baby dies that's not fun yeah well, but yeah. when the baby lives <laughs> yeah well you know like with something like for example like some of the cuts that you got off of ashley's sparrow record where you yeah know, those are like very lush very you know, there's a lot of strings happening, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff happening in the studio as far as making the songs really big and lush. Um, obviously, it's not like you guys have a, a string, some string players in the room at when you're writing the song. So, is that something you guys talk about or talked about whenever you guys were writing those songs, or was that just you didn't really know it until she started? working on them in the, in a studio setting? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of strings. Like mm-hmm. every record I love, uh, you know, and for a while there in the seventies, you couldn't turn on the country radio without hearing the string section behind the record. Right. You know, it's just, that's country music to me. That's classic pop music to me. It's classic American songbook to me, you know? Um, and I was tickled to death that she got strings, uh, you know, and, uh, I like how they did them. I like how they're just beautiful and chaotic and out of control. And the same girl that did the strings on her record did on my mind. So, you know, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty cool, but they take on different tones. Mine, I wanted more Bobby Gentry. I wanted more Delta, more, more mood. And I, I got what I wanted. And, uh, 
you know, but those Ashley songs, those, that was a great record. And, uh, and it happened so fast. Dude. She was pregnant when that record got recorded. And that seems like they got it done with like a couple of weeks. Yeah. I really like that record. It, to me, it, it does. Ashley's a fun person to write with because we're like minded. Um, and it's kind of interesting cause you know, we all write in little groups and sometimes we, we intermingle and intermarry and then sometimes we don't, or sometimes we'll break up the group a little bit and two and two will write with one or one will write with two or three will write with four. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a magic power spell between Miranda, Ashley and Aaron Rattier and myself. We all, um, we all come up with really good stuff. You know, I, I could write music with Ashley all week long because we just, we are the kind that we can start writing and, and Miranda too. And Aaron, you know, when we're together, it's it's not just one song that comes out of a two-hour period. Sometimes it's four or five, uh, you know. It's and and it's a strange dance to watch because it all bounces around. And even though you're on a different subject now and a different song entirely, people know and they flow and they go. You know, that's how we've gotten some great music together. It's just a there are no boundaries and no rules, so you get to do. You're just you know, it's beautiful to be with free like-minded friends. I love writing with Jack Ingram. Jack Ingram makes me very happy. Ours happened like at three or four in the morning over the phone, you know, uh, one will happen and then eight months will go by or eight years. And then, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've noticed between co-writers is that, or with writers in general, musicians in general, is that a lot of times you guys can just like cut through all the small talk and just get down to business. And like yeah. talking about stuff that matters in the, the um, when it comes to a song or whatever the case. And I had a terrible reputation when I got back here in 2015 because I was like, well, I, got, I had a great and a terrible one. Like I was known for like having a write at nine o'clock and by nine fifteen I was out the door because it was done. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, like, I go in, I get to work. I don't question it comes out. You do it, you whatever. Um, and that would frustrate some people sometimes. And sometimes it would give me the ability to also be in a room for 20 minutes and have nothing happen and not feel bad about going, I, I don't feel this today. Bye. You know, <laughs> uh, I think that we tap into other things that are bigger than us. We're not saying anything that has never been said before. We're just trying to find a different way to do it. Maybe somebody's dead upstairs that didn't get their chance to say it the way they wanted to. And we channel it and find it for them. Or maybe it's ours. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's that's great because like I'm I'm not very much of a small talk person either. Not much of a woman. well. I had a co-write with my mom, for example. If you want to know the honest truth on the Lee Womack record, I just didn't put her name on it. But uh, before she died, you know, I'd come in off of the road and we were living in Austin, and she had been calling Larry Gatlin and Willie and some other folks, and nobody would ever call her back, and it really broke her heart, you know, and and. Uh, she looked at me one day and she goes, I just want to know why nobody's home on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, she said, we ought to write that. And I, I fucking blew her off. I didn't write it with her. And then when I finally got sober all those years later and I moved into my house in Nashville, I heard my mama go, why is nobody home on Sunday? And I sat down in the house and I wrote it and it ended up going on Leanne's record, which was just a, beautiful beautiful thing yeah yeah i was gonna actually i have that song written down right here um yeah i think like these you you're able to tap into these moments that are just so um delicate and 
just, uh, I don't know, like there's, again, there's some of that magic of, 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 I don't know, being comfortable with, uh, by yourself in a way, like that feels like a very, even though you're talking about something that's about trying to connect with other people, but being able to be comfortable enough to realize those moments by yourself while yeah. you're drinking coffee or whatever the case. That's, I don't know, I really like those moments. You got to know what you want to say, you know? Mm-hmm. You got to, I mean, listen to Guy, listen to Towns, listen to Chris, listen to Willie, listen to Bobby, listen to our forefathers and mothers, you know? The reason we love those songs isn't because they were fluff and they didn't fucking move our souls. The reason we love those songs is because somebody before us cut to the quick and made us bleed. Yeah. And we liked it because it made us feel. And that's uh, that's what I want to do. I want to bleed and I want to feel. And so I try to do that. Yeah. What's uh, you, you know, you mentioned these some of these rights that are that were short. Um, what was like the, the shortest, like right on, on your record? What, what took like the, the shortest amount of time on my record? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of tough. Um, it would, well, high horse came very, very fast because high horse happened in the aftermath of my father dying and they, they usually do. They don't usually take very long. I'll brew them over in my head, but when they're finally ready to come out, they come out and they're there. Um, uh, precious thing, Clint and I wrote in about an hour. I think the same for Back from the Grave. It took us about 20 minutes. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, all the trouble took a little longer because uh, Adam is very, very good at what he does, and he really loves to make sure that everything is absolutely right. So is Leanne, you know what I mean? It's a different kind of a thing. They take a little more time, and it's good, and I'm glad they did. And uh, But it, for me, it's usually just a steady stream of consciousness. Once it starts coming, it flows, and it falls on the paper, and then, you know, it's ready to be sung. Yeah. Are you, are you like a pen and pad person, or are you... What, yep. As a matter of fact, I just cleaned my house last week, and I had to take another box up to the closet of tablets, like a damn out record album box full of... I've got them everywhere. Got them from going back 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, what... what uh, do you ever, like, I guess, like, on, on maybe, like, a song that you've not finished, do you ever go back and, like, pluck stuff from it for something new or or once it's kind of sometimes so- sometimes and there are certain songs too that are still in the box up there that i see every four or five years when i'm going through them you know uh mm-hmm. there's one song that i've literally been working on for um uh, 20 years now uh <clears throat> the first line is uh, and then it happened thunder broke the mountain that unleashed the sky and i just thought that was such a great line and um and uh, it's still there. It's in that box up there somewhere. <laughs> but I also recently was going through the box uh, for something, and I found a piece of paper from 2007, obviously right after a hang from Tyler, but it's very clearly the old blue eyes, the harlot, the queer, the pusher, and me. 
So that's cool. I might ought to pull that one out and frame it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that one's uh that's I always wonder about like what happens to to like all the notebooks and stuff. They're in a box up so. in the closet, several boxes actually. <laughs> yeah, well like you, you I just can't make myself throw them away. I mean, I've got scraps of paper literally up there that are 20 years old, mm-hmm. you know. Are you do you try and like have that notebook or or are you is it a lot more messy than that? Is that uh, it's just it's just pieces of paper, thousands of pieces of paper. There are books, there are legal tablets, there are notebooks, whatever I'm particularly into. I'm into red and whites or red and blacks. You've seen the red and black books that you can get at Staples? Red and black. They're like ledger sure. books. They're really pretty. There's a bunch of those up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm a I've I'm kind of like more of just a scrap paper person, mm-hmm. but not that I'm a songwriter, but like as far as like just writing notes and stuff, uh, I try to do the legal pads. Yeah. I've got a lot of legal pads. As a matter of fact, when this pandemic started and we first were shut down, I have a typewriter and I've been typing a book for the past four or five years off and on, you know, I'll, I'll get the typewriter out and I'll type for like five or 10 days and then put it away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I type with such fever, when that pandemic first started that all I had to type on was yellow legal pad paper. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bunch of my book typed on yellow legal pad paper. That was a real pitch to get on the lines because it's like, (laughs) yeah, like I think the, I've, I've done some, some typewriter writing as well. And I find like, it's like, uh, I don't know. I feel like it makes you slow down because of the process of like having to put the paper in and line up and all that, all the, yeah. And once you get going, dude, your thoughts just flow so easily, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it, 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 it takes over and in no time you're at the bottom of the page, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've got hundreds and hundreds of pages of that where, and it's just, and it's just been me, you know, I, I, I've just slowly been going through my life and, and a lot of it's terrible. A lot of it's tragic and awful and horrible and stuff. You just probably maybe never should have read, but maybe you should. Yeah. What, what about this? Like when you're writing, and you know you're talking about that stream of consciousness. Um, sometimes your mind can be going 100 miles an hour and not being able to catch up to how fast you are able to write with your hand, or in the case with a typewriter or something. Does does that mean does that help you like slow down and process it better, or you know what I mean? Is there anything? I'm like usually that? pretty good at if something hits me, I'll usually write it down. Mm-hmm. And, and let it mull over, you know. And surprisingly, lyrics stay with me, you know. They just stay up there in my head until they're ready to come out. I wanted to talk to you all one more time about our new partners at Desert Door and offer up a handful of my favorite ways to drink it. Get you a Mexican Coca-Cola, have a couple of swigs, then pour yourself some Desert Door Oak aged in, toss in a lime wedge or two, Or how about this? Pour some Desert Door into a mug, top off the glass with some ginger beer, squeeze in a lime. Or for all you ranch water drinkers out there, get you a Topo Chico, take a couple of pulls off, and then pour in some Desert Door. Toss in a couple of lime wedges, and now you have a mighty tasty and refreshing ranch water. Remember, Soto is as versatile as vodka and has a more refined, smooth, 
and a more complex palate than tequila. It's rich and balanced, and, and whatever your go-to drink is, it'll make it that much better. And again, it's inherently West Texas. It tastes like home. For more info on Desert Door, check our show notes. All right, that's it for Thomas Mooney's Cocktail Minute. Let's get back to the show. I've always wondered about that, too, because I think like whenever people talk about songwriting, we kind of like box it into or frame it as when you're writing down the lyrics or when you have the guitar in your hand and you're working on that aspect. But so much, I guess like a lot of our favorite songwriters have, so much of that is like there's so much work done before even writing down the the lyrics. It's the the thought process of thinking about these songs and these subjects before you even... Is do a lot of your songs they stay with you a lot beforehand and after you've written them like as far as like maybe going back and editing or something like that? How long? I don't really ever edit. Um, I'll know that something's good though by the amount of time I spend listening to it in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. The next morning is usually the telltale sign. Um, we'll record something and then turn the turn the phone off or turn the machine off. And I usually listen to new songs, I mean, even before the piss in the morning. you know what I mean? Like, I, I will get up and, and, like, if I'm excited about something, I'll give it a chance. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> You know, I've noticed a lot of times with songwriters is, like, after you've, you can, like, I guess, like, you can flip on a song as far as, like, if you're really excited about it, sometimes you obviously go, oh, you know, that's not as good as I thought it was, or vice versa. Um, well, that happened to me not too long ago. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Couple, what was like the... A couple few years ago at um, Steamboat Springs, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the big thing up there. Right. I hold Jack Ingram in such high esteem. Like, I mean, like, uh, he's pretty close to God in my eyes. He's fucking awesome. And I was playing his midnight show one night. And I started singing The Drifter. And there's a line at the end of it. Um, we take what we're given and we be what we be. That's the way I wrote it. And I was singing that song that night. And Jack was in the front row. And I got to that point. We take what we're given and we'd be, and he put his hand up and made me stop. And so I felt like I rewrote that song with Jack uh, that night. And taking those two words out even made the song more impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing right there. I think like that sometimes like, you know, it's when you show someone something, they obviously pull something else out or have those little, I don't know, bits of nug, uh, nuggets of, uh, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this. But like in, in that moment, like right there, the, the him, uh, I guess, finding something a little bit more like, hey, stop right there. Um, yeah. What Do you ever do that with other people? Have you, have you had those moments? You there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, okay. I'm trying to think if I've had okay. those moments with people. I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know. I think I had a few of them with my mom, but I can't give you a specific. Right. My mama was my, I mean, I, I, you know, um, I adored her. I, um, I respected everything she was about. And, and, uh, she told me early on that my songwriting was perfect and it was great and never to question it. So I haven't. Yeah. Well, you know, like how much, I mean, I, I find that, I mean, I, I guess like I find that really interesting because a lot of times, like I don't come from a musical family or anything like that. And, um, I guess like typically like your, your, your parents or, or your family in general are your biggest fans. And then I guess like at some point you kind of realize like, Oh, are they just saying that's good because they're family or because it's actually, no, my mom was a hard sell dude. Well, then that's what I was going to say is like, my mom was a hard sell. She didn't offer up compliments (laughs) at all. You know, she knew I wanted to be a singer like a lot, a lot, a lot. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And she'd heard me sing a couple times, you know, in high school, whatever, blah, 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 blah. I was nine, eight, I was 18. And I went to play a show with her in Granbury, Texas. And uh, I had really been getting into, you know, I was really into country music. I just, I really was. And uh, she did her first show and she was on a break. And, uh, she was in her dressing room, so I kind of snaked my way up to the band. I was like, hey, uh, you mind if I sing a song? <laughs> they were like, mm, what do you know? I said, but how about does Fort Worth ever cross your mind? Sure, we know that. Come on. This is Fort Worth, Texas. I mean, you know, what are they going to know that shit? Well, I started singing, and I'm having myself a good time. And I get through. <laughs> you have to understand the stage is up the front. You know, her dressing room was all the way in the back of the room, right? There was a door there, was, you know. And I get to cold Fort Worth beer just ain't no good for jealous. <laughs> I tried it not, and that door flew open. <laughs> <laughs> and she stood there, and this look was on her face, and, uh, She walked all the way down to the stage and she looked at me and st- stood in front of the stage while I sang that song. <laughs> and then she went, well, son of a bitch, <laughs> sing another, <laughs> you know? And the next day as we were driving back home, she was like, all right, I'm going to tell you something that I would never tell anybody else. You're my kid and I will tell you this. You're good. You've got it. Now, if you're serious, this is what it's going to take. And she ran down for me what I needed to do. Which in her words were, you find yourself somewhere that you can sing six nights a week. And you sing six nights a week. Anywhere you can sing, you sing. Shortly after that, Mama and I fell out for a while. Didn't talk for a number of years. But you know what I did? I made my way to, I made my way to San Antonio, Texas. I got a job <laughs> out of the blue working for Opryland, who had come down to open a theme park in San Antonio back in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And guess what my job was? 
I worked six days a week, <laughs> two shows a day. And, uh, and then I went on to Nashville and I found this little street called Broadway and it was rough, dude. But you know what I did? I sang seven nights a week. <laughs> I didn't make a dime, but I sang from 11 o'clock in the morning till four in the morning and I didn't stop. When I'd get done at one, I'd go to the next one. When I'd get done at that one, I'd go to the next one. And uh, it worked, dude. It worked. It took a little bit of a different path, but thank God. Thank God I didn't hit it when and have it easy, you know? Right. Yeah, like that's – I feel like with – obviously there's there's examples of people who – you know, the exceptions to the rule of hitting it when you're 18 kind of thing. But a lot of times, you know, the, the, the longevity uh, you find in people's careers is all that hard work, all those yeah. six hour or six days a week, seven nights a week, that kind of thing. At some point it pays off, you know, or it can. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to ask you about too is, You've been you've posted a, a few times about some new songwriters out there, people like Logan Ledger and Man, uh, he's great, dude. Yeah, he is freaking great. Uh, that just caught me off guard and just made me. Um, it made me. Uh, it just made me stop in my tracks. There's somebody else that I have been that's been burning me up. Have you heard of Zephaniah Ohora? Yeah, he was on the the podcast just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I tell me that. about this man, please. I've got I'm intrigued. I mean, like, is he like a Mennonite or something that has escaped and become a country singer <laughs> because he's badass? Yeah. And like uh, the space on that record, not only does he sound like Merle, but I mean, it just I thought it was I thought I was like, this has got to be a Haggard, you know? It's got to be Ben Haggard or something, and. Uh, it made me almost wreck my car. It's so good. I just absolutely adore him. Um, Rufus Wainwright, man, whew, that new record just blows my mind. He's so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who else I've been posting about lately. That's really made me crazy. Um, uh, Jeannie Seeley's pretty badass. I'm on her new record. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of those things I, I, one of my points of bringing this up was, you know, one of the things people always say is, oh, there's not any good country music lately, that kind of thing. And it, you just have to look around and because there's a lot of really great up and coming artists coming out. That record by Zephaniah, yeah, the, the Merle Haggard vibes are just, you know, clear and evident. And I just, I just love like just the, uh, the velvety aspects of his voice and um where's he from what's his story so he's like from i can't remember if he's from vermont or new hampshire but from one of those uh upper north east states and then he he lives in new york now he lives in i guess i think in brooklyn and uh, of course he does that's yeah. badass what are you talking about yeah. yeah he you know what the thing that surprised me too is um and you're going to go, of course he is, or was. But he he was a, a, hair, a hairdresser, too. And, like, 
that's why he's got such a, a nice have you seen him like he's got such a like just cool look oh yeah he's <laughs> swag it's so, swag yeah he uh yeah he was a really great person to talk with he's uh i don't know you should you should reach out to him um well put us in so. contact because i'm a huge fan i don't know if he knows who i am but i i want to know who he is he's great uh See, that's the beauty. I like that kind of stuff. I don't know if he'll ever be big or not, but I think he should be. Mm-hmm. And Logan, dude, that Mermaid song, he reminds me so much of a young Willie from the 60s. Willie's records from the 60s make my pecker hard. They're like fucking good shit, you know what I mean? Because right. he's like, he he sings. He sings to you. And I mean, like he really had a way with a phrase. Yeah. And, and those records because he slowed down and he took his time. You know what I mean? Hearing him sing crazy and his original recording of it versus now it's, you know, it's precious, but it's nothing like that sultry. And he was so handsome in a way back then, that short hair and those, those turtlenecks, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, uh, cause he was his own thing, you know, he was his own thing. And it, work yeah i wonder if i've uh, been so privileged to learn from him my life you know mm-hmm. yeah i think like the the turtleneck needs to come back in in country music the, maybe uh, not dude <laughs> maybe not buddy let's take a break on that and let's reroute and talk <laughs> about that next week <laughs> i think like logan wears a, a turtleneck every once in a while i was respecting you thomas come on <laughs> yeah i what i love about that about Logan's sound is that what it reminds me of is the, like a mix of like Buck Owens and Chris Isaac, like the, yeah. And it's just so weird. Yeah. I mean, like it's just so, it's just so weird. Uh, I mean, who sings about mermaids, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, um, damn it can't think so good it's just amazing it's just amazing um starlight is is damn amazing invisible blue the way that he puts indigo in there i think one time did you notice that Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's so crazy it's fucking crazy i love it yeah, it, it feels like I the, kept listening for Indigo again, and I never heard it because it was in the chorus one time. And I'm like, "Wait a minute, you can't do that!" But he did. <laughs> yeah, and he's in Nashville, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, I did a an interview with him a while back. I guess it was probably like last year uh, for Rolling Stone, and he was. Uh, yeah, it was. I guess he right whenever he first released that, imagining raindrops and starlight as like a double single and man he that's like you said like you just uh like the hair was like raising up on my arm the first time yeah I heard it's it like I what like, the oh. fuck is this yeah it's like it's like when i heard black and blue you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like wait a minute what is going on here in my ear hole because there's something really delicious happening i need to know <laughs> yeah yeah for sure i love the space on that fucking black and blue and not then not to mention the fact that it fucking thumps i mean driving your car I have a I have a Lincoln and and it's got a great sound system and I heard it yesterday again on the radio, um, on the way to to 
do something. And it just felt so good because the sun was out for a minute and it was like, yeah, this is where it's at, dude. Yeah. You know, that, that space that you're talking about, I think like for some reason, a lot of people are uncomfortable with space in a song and tell me about it, dude. When, when a songwriter is comfortable with that, like it just makes all the difference. Like one of my favorites. Have you ever heard um have you ever heard my mama's version of Today I Started Loving You Again? No, I have not. I'm gonna write that down. I want you to challenge yourself to listen to that. And that is what I mean by space. <laughs> it is the coolest, most spacious song. And I think it will make your day really good. You yeah. should probably play it at the end of this podcast so that everybody else can hear it too and have a moment because it's good. I will. I'll throw it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had, like the space in a song is so, I guess like whenever you're, when you were doing this record right here, how aware are you of, of space and like trying to make space a, a sound? It was, it was just, it was, it happened the way it did, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm literally being serious. I mean, minus a couple of guitar overdubs uh, and my harmonies and the strings. Everything was, was, was done on the floor, you know? I think there were a few overdubs of some things, but it was, it was pretty much, for the most part, it, it happened that way. It was, it was presented and recorded spaciously. And then everything that was added to it or taken away from it contributed to that whole space feeling. Yeah. You know, the way you, on the very end, uh, the way you like space out, uh, between, especially like, I think between like the pusher and me, like on the very, very end, you, you feel like I really, I think like that makes that such a bigger moment is like just the way you play, uh, spaced out blue eyes, the harlot, the queer, and then that you add an and in there and the push. Yeah, yeah, that's the original. Well, see, that's a, yeah. okay. We thought about that for a minute. If you really want to know the truth, the true title of the record is supposed to be Old Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, and The Pusher, and Me, because that's the line. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, for, for whatever reason, they thought those two extra words would make it too wordier than it already was wordy. <laughs> <laughs> we did fight over that, though. I mean, I, it was really a, a I, I really did fight for it. I wanted it to be authentic to that phrase, you know. Yeah. But I'm extremely happy with uh, with the title. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, again, like just that space. The they you, you could have had those two words in. You know, big deal. <laughs> you know, whatever. Hey, at, at least I, if I gave it, I think I gave up the two words in exchange. For, it's going to be embossed on the front cover. So it was a good exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for you to see the album. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, I, one I of, mean, at least the pictures, the, the pictures of it are gorgeous. I am. Uh, the test pressing is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. There are three songs on each side. So it gives you the complete acts on each side. And, uh, there's a beautiful booklet inside, some nice artwork that was done for us, uh, and uh, and uh, a beautiful cover and a beautiful back. Mm -hmm. Well, what I was going to ask about that, though, is obviously you said the three songs in the, in the acts. What was, like, uh, I guess, like, 
putting them out as those four or the three EPs and then the record. Was that just to, uh, well, I guess like what was the thoughts on that of putting them out in the EP sections? I mean, I think that was brilliance on the team of, uh, on the marketing team's part and, uh, on empire's part and on carnival records part. It was a, it was kind of a unanimous decision that we were going to present it this way. And, and, uh, and then it fell into the place. So, okay, if we're going to do it that way, let's do act one, act two, and act three, you know, and, uh, each have it, it's little vignette and each vignette tells a story in its own. You know, if you think about it, I mean, at least that's the way I hear it. I, I'm very pleased with the way that things fell onto the vinyl. Um, and it's a cool experience. Um, like I said, I've wanted this since I was a baby, dude, to mm-hmm. have my own, my, I mean, records were my best friends when I was two years old. You know, I'm 50, dude. Keep remembering that. <laughs> records <laughs> were badass when we were babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know what you, how old you are. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay, so you're almost there. I don't know what you had. Did you have, did you have cassettes? Uh, well, I mean, like cassettes early Y'all on. Y'all still had records, CDs. sorta. Yeah, well, I've, I'm a big record guy now. I go okay. So, uh, my whole thing is like the record is it's bigger art, it's bigger um, pictures. Obviously, like I pour over the liner notes, so like I love that stuff on on a record. And when it's a big physical piece, like that's oh, you're gonna get so a good much. one on this one. So, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if like Do you like liner notes. Yeah, I love liner notes. I love like all the all that. Because again, like I think it all adds the context of a record and to the songs and to an artist. So the liner notes are my favorite part too. I believe in giving credit where credit is due, and I I believe we have done so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if like the reason why the EPs was was maybe connected with COVID because of like just spacing it out over this pandemic, or or if that was kind of the plan. Uh, that was what we were going to do in the first place, but it was, and it was supposed to happen a month sooner. It was supposed to, you know, the original thing, I think we were going to try to get it out by July, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, it, we pushed back a little bit, but that's okay. It's good. It's here next week, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. My baby is being born next week. Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, mean, I appreciate it. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening to New Slang. If you haven't yet, just hit that subscribe button. Check out Waylon Payne's new album at the end of the week. It's called Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. Check out our presenting partners, Desert Door and The Blue Light Live here in Lubbock. Check out the New Slang merch store while you're at it. Okay, I'll see you all later this week for another episode.